Well, I'm uh, really glad to be here. And uh, I'm going to take off my watch so that uh, uh, this means nothing, but it at least should give you peace of mind. <laughs> uh, I love Colorado Springs. I've been here every year for the last six or seven years, and it's the only city outside of San Diego that I'd say, God, if you want to send me someplace, send me to Colorado Springs. I'm just delighted to be here. I want to thank uh, uh, Madam Mayor for being here today and Sheriff Anderson, all the other elected officials and dignitaries of your city. What an honor that you would come uh, to this event. I want to thank uh, my hosts, uh, Dick and Doris Peace. I've spent the night at their home. And, and I have to tell you, Dick treats me so poorly. <laughs> and, and, I, and I need your help, okay? I just need your help because I got to go back and face the same kind of abuse he gives me every time I come. So when I raise my hand, would you just collectively say, don't do that, Dick. <laughs> All right? All right, so I, let's just practice. Don't do that, so I come in. First thing he says to me is, don't start messing up my house, act right. I'm hungry. I had only a piece of toast for breakfast. I got on the airplane, they give you that little dry sandwich that reminds you of the desert. I come to Dick's house and, and I'm famished. And he says to me, well, I hope you're not hungry. So he knows that I don't like to watch horror movies, right? So last night he says to me, Bill, there's a movie that I want you to watch. Sixth Sense. Now, I don't watch anything that makes me look under my bed at night <laughs> or to switch on a nightlight. I just don't do that. And he was trying to force me to watch this movie last night. And so I get up this morning, I take a shower, I'm ready, I'm sitting in the dark waiting for him, and he comes down and he says, well, it's about time, you're ready, I've been waiting for you. Now, I gotta go home with this man after this event. And you know he's gonna be mean to me when we get back. So I just want one last rousing one. All right. I feel a lot more secure now. But you know, it's so funny coming to Colorado Springs and to speak at a prayer breakfast, and I realized that at staying at Dick and Doris's house, their address, their address causes me great concern because it's purgatory. <laughs> so I can truly say I've been to hell and back and... Well, I love to speak at events like this, and my wife, whenever she comes, she, she gets so nervous for me. And I remember at, at, at one event, and they give you this mic. Well, I got the jitters, and at my age, you never miss up a chance to go to the men's room. So I got up, went to the men's room, not knowing that my mic <laughs> True story not knowing that my mic was live. 
So I'm in there, not, you know, I'm oblivious to anything. And outside, my wife is sitting in the audience hearing all these sounds. She's panic stricken and she's just praying, God, please make him wash his hands. Please make him wash his hands. And when I washed my hands and walked out, she was sitting there, and she was just shaking. It was such a look, such a look of relief on her face, and I couldn't understand what it was until, until, until after the event. My goodness. <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you um, a little bit about uh, about my testimony, about uh, what it means to me to know Jesus Christ. I grew up in uh, Chicago. I was born in 1947. Uh, my mother had grown up in Spring, Tennessee, and my father in McDonough, Georgia. And uh, Chicago in 1947 was a, a strictly racially divided city. There were clear demographic lines where you could go. That's where the blacks lived. That's where the Puerto Ricans lived. That's where the Polish people, etc. So very clear lines of demarcation. But I had, I had as close to idyllic a childhood as one could have, even in racially segregated Chicago. Uh, my mother and father were divorced when I was five. I can remember the scene as clear, clear as day. And we moved in with my grandmother. My grandmother uh, just passed away last year at 94 years old. She was uh, cooking for everybody in the household until she was 87. And uh, her name was Big Mama. Big Mama was 4'6". <laughs> Big Mama would come right up to here on me. And she was a small woman. She wasn't overweight. She was slight in build, but it was the force of her character. Force of her character, she got her name. And everybody in the neighborhood called her Big Mama. She owned the building that we lived in. And there were six apartments, and Mom and I occupied the basement apartment. And I was 16 years old before I found out my grandmother's name. It just struck me. I said, Mom, what is Big Mama's name? Because I'd, I'd only refer to her to, refer to as Big Mama or Miss Jones. And she said, Billy, you don't know. And, and my mother called her Shorty. I said, you don't know Big Mama's name? I said, no. She says, it's Anna, Anna Jones. And I said, oh, Anna Jones. Well, when I grew up in Chicago, it was the tradition, it was the cultural tradition of the time that you went to church on Sundays. It wasn't anything that we could debate about, it wasn't a matter of discussion, uh, it wasn't, there was no vote, there was no vote. I knew that on Sunday, no matter what happened, we were going to Big Mama's church and we were going, uh, going to Big Mama's house and we would go to church, that was it. And uh, Big Mama lived on the west side of Chicago. I lived on, the, at, we eventually moved out when I was about nine years old. And we moved to the south side. So we drive all the way across town to get to the Walnut Street Church. And Big Mama would always be there. And one reason I didn't mind is that Big Mama would cook these incredible meals. Homemade rolls. We used to kid, kid Big Mama that we had to throw them up in the air and put a quarter on top so they could come down. Because they were so light. And, uh, but I hated going to church. And I, I threw spitballs, I cracked jokes, I fell asleep. It was torture for me to go to church on Sunday. But again, I didn't have any choice, 
So all my life, Sunday was the same ritual, church on Sundays. Never meant anything to me at all. And I went to college, and the first thing I gave up was going to church. I dropped it so quickly you would. It was like you had a lobster on your rear end. And when you could pull it off, there was such a relief. Now, I didn't, tell my, uh, I didn't tell Big Mom, I didn't tell my mother anything about that. And I went to Dartmouth in 1965, and that was just the beginning of the black student movement in the Northeast. You will recall that in the spring of 66, the black students at Columbia were armed and took over the administration building in Columbia University. And so it was an incredibly heady time full of political ferment and foment. And I was radicalized at college. But when I went home, I never said anything. I just kind of muted my response. And I had a, an afro. Uh, it would probably just <laughs> dust the bottom of the chandeliers when I walked in. If I sneezed, it took me 10 minutes to get my head back up. I remember one, one funny story on the Dartmouth campus. Uh, we were the largest group of entering black students Dartmouth ever had, and there were 17 of us. And, um, and there was a hardware store called the Hanover Hardware Store. And uh, we were looking for Afro picks, all right? Afro picks in Hanover, New Hampshire. <laughs> you see the dilemma we had, right? But one of the brothers on campus said, man, down at the hardware store, they have a bunch of Afro picks. So all the black guys were going down to the hardware store buying Afro picks. Pearl-handled Afro picks, white-handled Afro picks, ivory. And you put them in your back pocket. Of course, you couldn't get them out because the tongs would get stuck in your back pocket. But, so I'm, I go down, and I'm, I want to get my Afro picks. So I walk into the proprietor. I say, I want an Afro pick. He said, what's an Afro pick? I said, well, you know, the, you do your hair. He said, I don't sell those. And I'm thinking, okay, here, he's going to have an attitude with me. <laughs> and I said, look, I know that you sell these Afro picks. He said, no, we don't. He said, but can I ask you a question? I'm going, well, okay, what? He said, I didn't know your people had such a sweet tooth. I'm going, sweet tooth? What are you talking about? I, he said, well, they just, you, you just love angel food cake. I go, angel food cake? We don't like angel food cake. He said, well, all, all the, they call them Afro-Americans, all the Afro-Americans are coming down by angel food cake cutters. <laughs> I said, what's an angel food cake cutter? He reached out and he said this. I said, that's an afro pick." <laughs> Oh boy, but anyway, I was, uh, I, I was at Dartmouth and I got, I got increasingly embittered while I was at Dartmouth. And um, I got increasingly alienated from whites. I didn't want to have anything to do with white people. I felt that the only way black people could make it in this society was actually to physically leave and go someplace else. Uh, I discussed these views with my parents and it, uh, with my mama. I didn't discuss it with big mama, but I discussed it with my mother. <laughs> And it just, it just broke her heart to hear this. 
I actually dropped out of Dartmouth. But I had amassed, I was a good student, I was very aggressive and I liked to study. And I had so many credits that even though I dropped out, I'd already had enough credits to graduate. Uh, and uh, I had won a Rhodes Scholarship, but I had sent in a letter saying I, I, I refused to accept the award. Because Cecil Rhodes was a, a terrible imperialist and racist, and I said, I'm not going to endorse this. So I left, went to Chicago, worked at a service station at 35th and State, which is the beginning of the public high-rise apartments. And it's just a high-rise ghetto in Chicago. And I had this romantic notion that I was going to be with the people right there at that corner. It was an L stop, uh, elevated train stop. And I saw all this misery walk by that corner, and I was just shocked. Um, and, and one day I was um, washing a man's windows and it was overcast. Shafts of sunlight were coming through. And I literally felt like something had grabbed my chin and lifted up to the sky and just like that I knew that God existed. It was absolute affirmation in my heart that God existed and that his essential nature was love. And I ran home and told my father who lived relatively close to our home and he dismissed the thought that was not of interest to him but I began to dabble in different things now I, I had repudiated God he didn't exist Christianity was just the white man's way of suppressing black people make them think about a pie in the sky where they catch hell on earth and I thought there was all a lot of claptrap and I decided I needed to get away from the US for a while so I wrote back to the Rhodes Committee and said if that scholarship is still available I'd like to take it and they said, yeah, well, welcome, welcome. Got on the ship and Chief uh, Justice Warren Berger was on that ship. And we sailed across to uh, England. Had a great two years uh, at uh, Oxford and I began to read the Bible and things began to open up a little bit and I was slightly religious, you know, but just lightly. And um, I decided to go to law school, went to law school started practicing and everything was going well in the practice of law. Uh, I bought my first house nine months after graduating from high school, uh, law school. My mother worked all her life. She wanted to raise her son in, in a home, a house. She got her house nine months before I got mine. I was already out and gone. Had married, was starting, trying to start a family. And um, my job was going well. I was having tremendous success. Uh, we owned a house, we had two cars, and I was terribly unhappy. I couldn't put my finger out. My wife is a fox. My wife is just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, we now had a young son named Ryan. And I could not figure out why I was unhappy. And I was um, um, lying in bed, and I, uh, I sleep like a teenager. Not like a baby, you know, a baby they sleep, wake, wake up, go to the bathroom, go back. But a teenager, you know, they just rock out. So I was sleeping like a teenager. And I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I could not get back to sleep. I couldn't figure out why. I tossed and turned. And then this thought popped in my mind, maybe God is trying to talk to you. I just cannot impress upon you how weird a thought that was to me. But I, I, I inched my way up in bed hoping that Dana, who sleeps very lightly, would not wake up and ask me what I'm doing. But I set up, and, and in my mind, without speaking out loud, I said, well, God, if you are speaking to me, what do you want? And instantly this thought came, write Steve Carlson. And Steve Carlson was one of my best friends at my law firm who had just left 
to become a lobbyist for the largest real estate consortium in California. And his office was now in Sacramento, our state capital. So I didn't have anything to write Steve about. I had just talked to him on the phone. I had nothing new to say, but I got up, got out pen, got out paper, sat down, and it's now about 2.25 in the morning. I'm feeling like a complete idiot. It took me probably five minutes. You know how you, you roll out of bed hoping that the, that the springs don't creak or anything so that your spouse will wake up? And I'm just petrified that I'm going to roll out and Dana's going to say, what are you doing? Oh, well, God spoke to me and I'm going <laughs> to. I can see her calling 911. Come get my husband quickly, quickly. So I rolled out of bed, got pen and paper, sat down. Nothing, nothing. I'm just, I'm just so frustrated. And then after a while, out of frustration, I, I say again in my mind, well, look, God, if you, and I'm actually kind of petulant at this point. I'm, I said, look, if you want me to write Steve Carlson, you're going to have to tell me what to say. And no sooner than I said that um, is I saw the clearest picture in my mind. It's as though God had taken the whole wall where I was sitting and made it a screen. And I saw this man in a very dark setting in a wood kneeling, sweating profusely with drops of blood on his brow. And I knew, I guess, from different things that this was Jesus kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. And something or someone had just said something and I could only, there was, I heard the trailing words and I couldn't make out what the words were. And then this voice above Jesus said, um, no, Jesus said, uh, do I have to die on the cross? And this voice said, certainly, my son, you do not have to die on the cross. But I want you to know that 1,947 years from now, a young child named Bill McCurin will be born. If you do not die on the cross, he will never know me. But if you do die, he might he didn't say definitely. He said he might come to know me. And with just the slightest hesitation, Jesus said, that's enough. I'll go. Well, that was the first time. I mean, I probably heard the phrase, Jesus died for your sins thousands of times. But it's the first time I ever heard it. And, and if you had asked me the day before, was I a Christian? I would have said, of course. And if you had asked me, why do you think I'm a Christian? I would have said, well, I'm born in the U.S. <laughs> Big Mama goes to church. And I know Harry over there. Harry's a lousy jerk. I'm a lot better than Harry. And I kind of ticked off some of the good things I do. I said, well, you know, I'm definitely a Christian. I'm definitely in there. But all of a sudden, I realized that I was a sinner. It was just absolute conviction that I was a sinner and that there was nothing that I could do in myself to commend myself to God, to make me someone that God would want to save because of my moral character. I'll give you an example. Take the thoughts that you've had in the last 24 hours. And let's say we could, with the modern technology, hook up a projector 
and flash your thoughts onto a big screen for everyone to see over the last 24 hours. Kind of frightening, isn't it? Well, that just gives you a feel of what sin is like. And, and when I realized that I absolutely needed Jesus Christ, that there was nothing I could do to earn his favor, that he was giving me a free gift in his love, willing to die for me on the cross and accept the punishment that was rightfully mine. I was sitting in this chair and I literally fell out and I just started crying, not gentle sobs. I just howled. I, I put my hand over my mouth. I was trying to stop myself for fear that Dana would wake up and ask me, what's wrong? What could I say to her? How could I explain this? And I cried until I began to hack. There was no more moisture in my body. And let me tell you what had precipitated that. Two weeks earlier, I was walking through the house and felt myself just go down on my knees out, out of the blue. And I said, you know what, God? I don't even know if you exist. I said, but I do know that I don't like to go to church. I don't like to sing hymns. I don't like to read the Bible. And I don't like to hang with Christians. But I do love to play squash. That's my prayer. You know, squash is like racquetball, but longer handle. I said, if you are who you say you are, make me love these things more than I love to play squash. Two weeks later, God woke me up. And I had no recollection of that prayer till much later, much later. And then God brought me to a point where I love to be with the people who know God. I love to sing hymns, love to read the Bible, and love to fellowship with the other people in the church. Unbelievable. And as a lawyer, I am just sort of amazed when I think back at the different rationales that I gave and that I've heard for rejecting Jesus Christ. And, and one of them, let me start right off from the bat, I am not talking about religion. I have no interest in you being religious. I have no interest in you joining a religion. Uh, Malcolm X used to say, you could be born in, a, in an oven, but it doesn't make you a biscuit. <laughs> so going to church and all that stuff, I mean, religions, religion and religi religiosity generally stand in the way of knowing God personally. So I want to just, for today, I want to throw out this whole concept of religion or somebody being religious. That is not the issue. The issue is whether one has a relationship with a God who is alive, loves us, cares about us, and has sacrificed everything for our salvation. And that's entirely different. And uh, one of the things I've encountered, I, I, I'm not going to go into 10 of them. They're like my 10 favorite excuses. And you have to forgive me. I process things linearly like a lawyer. Um, and so everything is kind of logical or illogical to me. And I look back at the reasons for rejecting Jesus Christ, and they are so illogical to me. I don't expect logic to open up one's heart to Jesus Christ. But it is so illogical not to know Jesus. Uh, let me give you one of, my, one of my favorite things. I used to say this. Well, you know, I just can't buy that faith thing. That's good for you, but not for me. I just can't, I just can't buy that faith. Well, the Bible defines faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let me put it another way. You don't know the whole picture. You get bits and pieces, and then you fill in the rest by faith. 
Let me give you a practical example. I flew out on United Airlines. Now, I do not know whether they put the right fuel or the right amount of fuel in that plane. I do not know whether the pilot that day would feel that this was the day to end it all. I do not know whether the mechanics tightened that bolt the way they were supposed to. I don't know any of that. I take that all by faith. Now I can rationalize, you know, we've got all these federal regulations, people are concerned about their job, blah, blah, but I don't know that. And the fact that I have arrived safely doesn't confirm that they tightened down everything properly. You know, there were other people in that U.S. or the, you know, uh, you know that jet that crashed in the Everglades that had some false material. That false material had been on there for several flights. I don't know that. And so the thing to understand is that God has constructed the human experience so that it is absolutely impossible for any human being to live without faith. The alternative is to be omniscient. You know all before it has ever happened. Then God is the only person who doesn't operate by faith. The rest of us fill in the blanks. And the issue is not whether you have faith because you cannot do without it. It is impossible. The issue is what is your faith placed in? And my faith is not placed in United Airlines and the federal regulations for, for uh, aviation safety. My faith is placed in Jesus Christ. You with me? All right. So all men live by faith. And here's, here's, a, here's another one. I love this because this is, this is the Jesse Ventura argument. <laughs> this is the Jesse Ventura argument. Religion is a crutch. Don't you love that? I just love that argument. Generally speaking, not always, this is the person who says that. Not always, but generally. I think this religious stuff is, a, is a, just a crutch. <laughs> Am I right? They got a drink in one hand or a marijuana stick in another or they got a network, they're afraid to stand on their own two feet, blah, 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 blah. And they have the nerve to say religion is a crutch. But again, I'm not talking about religion. You understand? I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. But if by crutch you mean something that enables you to walk without which you could not walk, then praise God that I have a crutch. And that crutch is Jesus Christ. And, and I tell you, God has made me do things that I would never do on my own. I'd be entirely too afraid. Airplanes, for example, used to be petrified to fly. Petrified. And God spoke to me, says, now how can you trust me? How can you trust me when the Bible says perfect love casts out fear? It doesn't put it aside neatly. It casts it out. Hurls it away. Like a, where's Dave Dravecki? Grab that ball, and you hurl it out. That's what faith does. It hurls out the fear. And I, Now, that's not to say that every flight is going to be smooth. And that's not to guarantee that I will get there. But it will guarantee that Jesus will always be with me no matter what. 
And so I just started flying, knees knocking together, scared. To, and every time we hit a little turmoil, oh my goodness. And you know, flying into Colorado Springs. <laughs> I mean, it's like God said, I got to test your faith, Bill. Go to Colorado Springs. <laughs> okay, Lord. <laughs> My wife is, uh, used to be terribly shy. If we went out in a group of more than four people and any one of those persons was unknown to her, she would not speak. She would, if she had something to interject in the conversation, she would lean over, nudge me, whisper in my ear, and I was supposed to put it into the conversation. <laughs> I'm not kidding, we did that for years. We did that for years. And my wife came to Jesus Christ and every Monday night, she teaches a room full of women, almost this size, 520 women, every Monday night. People who know my wife from high school and college cannot believe it because Jesus empowered her and enabled her to do it. Sundar Tapa, Nepalese, he's been called the Billy Graham of Nepal, came to fellowship with us one day. He's grabbed by the authorities because they know he is teaching about Jesus Christ, they take him, they cut open his arms, right here, and they tell him, we want you to renounce Jesus Christ and we will get you healed. He said, I cannot renounce Jesus Christ. So they pour in salt. He said, I cannot renounce Jesus Christ. Then they pour in pepper. And finally they see that he will not renounce Jesus Christ and they let him go. Now, what crutch will enable you to do that? Another one of my favorite arguments is I'm, a, I'm a, really a pretty good person, especially compared to my neighbor. <laughs> but there's a statement in Isaiah, it says, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. The best things we think we do are in God's sight just like filthy rags. And those are the things that we want to trot before God as a reason that he should save us. And in Romans it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And then it says, without faith in him, it is impossible to please him. Let me give you an analogy, because I may be better than you or you may be better than me. But uh, let's say we come to the Grand Canyon, me and Michael Jordan, and we both got on Air Jordans, <laughs> all right? And we both can back up as far from the rim as we want to, take as many practice runs as we want to, and we run, and the idea is we gotta jump across to the other rim. And I practice, I bench press, leg press, I'm ready. And Michael and I line up and take off at the same time. And you know what? Michael makes it out 20 feet. But old Bill, he makes it out 21 and a half feet. You know what happens to Michael and me? <laughs> We're going down. It won't do me any good to look back and say, you know, I got another foot and a half over you, baby. And that's what it's like when we think that we, we can turn to our own good works. Turn our own good works and have God save us. No, 
We are saved because God says, look, there is no way, Bill. I don't care how you pump up those Air Jordans. I don't care how many leg presses you do. There's no way you can jump from here to the other rim. So I'm going to have my son do the work for you. And all I want you to do is accept his work on your behalf and renounce any notion that you deserve my salvation, that you deserve eternal life, and that you deserve the gift of heaven. And recognize that I have given it to you as an undeserved gift because I have sovereignly, sovereignly decided to love you. God does not set his love on me because this cute little brown-skinned boy in Chicago was such a wonderful little bundle of joy. He sovereignly said, I will love this selfish, inconsistent, hypocritical young man. I will save him and cause him to understand that without me, he can do nothing. And then uh, I'm just going to end with this. I'm not going to give you all the reasons, but people say, you know, I don't believe God is going to judge me. I don't believe God is, God, God loves me. I don't believe God is going to judge me. And I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where in your human experience have you ever known a human society that did not judge? I mean, it is part of our very nature to judge. And God always judges us based on the standard that we have validated. You know, people say, well, it would be unfair to, for God to judge me this way, this way, this Well, true. But God is always going to judge you based on the st standard that you have validated in your own life. So that we will never be able to say before God, that's unfair. Let me give you an example. I said, well, I don't, I don't like Jack Howard. He's, so, he's, he's a hypocrite. Okay? What's the standard? The standard is not being a hypocrite. So when I go before God, I haven't accepted Jesus Christ. And I say, God, I think I ought to come in. He said, okay, Bill, I'm going to judge you. He said, oh, can't judge me, not fair. I didn't know this, didn't know that. He said, that's all right, Bill, I'm going to judge you by your standard. And he played back that videotape when I said, you know, Jack Howard's a hypocrite. And he said, now that's the standard that you validated in your life. Now, Bill, have you ever been hypocritical? Oh, goodness. Because I know he's got that videotape. He's already shown me Jack Howard. <laughs> He's already shown me Jack Howard. So we know it is, it is illogical for a human being to think that God does not judge because he has set us up in society so that one of the fundamental natures of our society is that we judge. It doesn't matter whether the society is primitive or advanced. Every one of them judges and has a mechanism for judgment. It also has its own rules for citizenship. I cannot... I cannot walk into France and declare myself a French citizen. I can do it, but people think I'm crazy. They won't let me vote. They, in Mexico, I can say I'm a Mexican citizen, but they won't let me own property. Because you have to go through the procedure that that government has set up in order to become a citizen. So in with the kingdom of God. God has his rules. He says, look, if you want to become a citizen here, I appoint you. I appoint you. It won't do you any good to come up to heaven and say, I'm a citizen. Yeah, okay. Okay. And the only way you get to be a citizen is to say, God, I am a sinner. There's no way I deserve your kindness, your love, your mercy, and eternal life.
But Jesus died for me. He has taken every sin that I've ever committed, put it on his shoulders, and then he took it to the cross, died on the cross, and accepted the punishment that was rightfully mine. So I don't plead my cause. I plead the death of Jesus Christ. You're in, Bill. You're in. Now let me leave with this. There's still time. You always have tomorrow. A young man in our Sunday school class believed that. Dana and I, my wife and I co-teach or co-taught the high schoolers for six years. And uh, we'd always invite the gang kids and the street kids to come in so they could hear the gospel. And I remember one young man sitting there as clear as day and I'm telling him, you know, you don't have tomorrow. I know you think you have tomorrow, but you don't have tomorrow. Today is the appointed time for you to accept Jesus Christ. And he gave me a knowing smile. Walked out, went home, and before the next Sunday, he was standing on the street corner. Some people drove by in the car, shot him in the head, and he died. I, now is the time. I'd like you to do something that I'd like you to close your eyes. I'd like you to bow. I'm going to say a prayer. And if God has touched your heart in any way that you want to say, God, I, I want the salvation of Jesus Christ. I want to be free from the penalty for sin and the attraction of sin. Then I'd like you to quietly pray with me. Lord God, I confess to you that I am a sinner. Forgive me for all the times I have denied you. Forgive me for the times that I dismissed your call on my life. Forgive me for thinking about religion rather than Jesus. And forgive me for thinking that I am good and deserve your salvation. I need you. Please save me. Jesus, I invite you into my heart and I ask you to take charge there. Make me a new man or new woman and give me eternal life in you. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. I'd like you. And here's your final motivation. My wife shared this with me the other day. She says, you know, in heaven, the chefs are French. The police are British. The lovers are Italian, the mechanics are German, and the Swiss organize it all. But in hell, the chefs are British. <laughs> the police are German, 
the lovers are Swiss, the mechanics are French, and the Italians organize it all. Thank you.